This episode is made possible by generous support from Cobbled Streets. Cobbled Streets is a Colorado nonprofit that provides customized support to kids in foster care and foster parents. Their creative support takes many forms, including free equine therapy for foster parents and teens through their partnerships with Groundwork Ranch and Foster Source, guided nature walks for the whole family, fulfilling custom foster family requests, and much more. Cobble Streets also partners with Justice Special to support our database of foster care resources that you can find at justicespecial.com and includes more than 250 resources across the state of Colorado. We're proud to partner with Cobble Streets because they treat each kid in care as an individual. Their innovative approach is what is truly needed to fight the foster care crisis. Learn more about how you can get involved or get support at cobbledstreets.org. We realized that horses as prey animals behave in a lot of ways very, very similarly to humans who have experienced trauma. Horses are aware of things in our environment that we are not aware of, just like foster children are aware of things in our environment that we are not. We just have never had to be aware of those things in the way that they have had to be aware of them. And so we might dismiss them. And we, as people who are foster parenting, sort of need to be aware of those things because they are affecting the way children are behaving. Welcome to Just a Special, the place to learn more about foster care from diverse perspectives. I'm Natasha, a foster mom, and I learned something really surprising recently. It turns out horses and kids in foster care have a lot in common. Today, we're bringing you a fascinating conversation with Groundwork Ranch co-founders Lottie Grimes and Dave Weiner. Groundwork Ranch provides equine-assisted learning programs for at-risk teens, foster and adoptive parents of children who've experienced trauma, and others in Louisville, Colorado. All foster parents are able to attend their practice lab for free, and I had the chance to do so myself before our conversation together. Stick around until the end of the show, and we'll let you know how you too can attend their practice lab for foster parents. But first, let's dive in and meet our guests. Lottie has been a licensed professional counselor since the mid-90s, and is also a certified clinical trauma professional. She has three kids ranging in age from 16 to 22 at the time of this recording, and I asked her how her kids would describe her. So I asked my kids that question, which was interesting because my daughter answered right away. My son, my middle son never answered, and my youngest son eventually did answer, but I thought it was interesting because I never actually really thought about that. So my daughter said, strong, smart, funny, and hardworking. And my youngest son, who I thought would say, intrusive, (laughs) said charismatic, sociable, empathetic, energetic, but able to be serious when necessary and great with animals. Dave is also a licensed professional counselor and certified clinical trauma professional. And in addition, he's also a certified grief counseling specialist. As a former foster parent who experienced a placement disruption himself, Dave can relate firsthand to the joys and challenges foster parents face on a daily basis. I asked him how his son would describe him. My son once described me in a single word that uh, I thought was actually the the best compliment he ever gave me, which was uh, gentle, and that meant a lot to me. We started our conversation off with each of them sharing a personal experience that helped shape them into the person they are today. In college, I dated someone and because of some of the storms in my childhood, had a propensity to pick the wrong person to date. And this guy who's a really, he's a very funny, wonderful person, but he at the time drank way too much and uh, we used to get in these big fights And one night we had a big fight and I went in my car and I parked at this outside of this park and it was dark and I was just sitting in the parking lot in my car and somebody like some presence literally came and sat in the seat next to me. It was, it was really profound feeling of, and and I'm not a, a super religious person. I'm pretty spiritual, but anyway, something was there with me and 
I heard almost this voice say, he'll be fine without you. Because I grew up in a home where there was alcoholism and my role in my family was to sort of save the family, you know, and save everyone and sort of make light. I'm a, I'm, I can make pretty much anything fun. And that's always been my role in my family. And this voice said, he will be fine without you. And he had even said to me, if, if we ever break up, I'll kill myself. I think a lot of people have that sort of something similar in terms of experience with early relationships, this really sort of codependent, like I can't live without you kind of a thing. And I had sort of bought into that, like, oh, I can't leave him because he said he'll kill himself. What will he do without me? And this voice said, he'll be fine without you. And I was like, oh my gosh, like it really was like, oh, you know, I am not that great. I'm not keeping anybody alive. I don't have to save anybody. And it was this really humbling moment, but also extremely liberating. Like, I don't have to worry about anyone else but me. He was fine without me. He'll be fine when we're done. He will be fine. And he was, he was absolutely fine. He went on to live a, a great life. And he, I've been actually been in touch with him recently. So yeah, it, it, I don't know what it was that happened that night, but it was it was very profound for me. Yeah, that sounds super transformational. And also like what a healthy view to having healthy boundaries, right? Between you and the people you're helping. And I imagine too, like as foster parents listening, like me listening to that as a foster parent, I'm like, wow, like that's also a really healthy view for me to be able to remind myself of this work too. We're not the superhero of the story here, right? Right, right. And and who am I to sit in judgment of anybody else's journey and say, they're not doing it right. I know better. I will save them. Because that's, that's the arrogance of codependency is I see you on this journey of alcoholism and I want to save you from it because, you know, I know better. I know that this is not the journey you're supposed to be on. And that's, that's totally wrong. I can barely sometimes get my teeth brushed in the morning. And yet I think I can, you know, change the course of somebody else's life in a way that is better than what they are choosing. Dave and I actually do talk about that with parents. We talk about having humility when we're parenting. We actually say out loud, you know, one of the best things to do is to parent with humility. We can learn from our kids and we don't always know the best answer. We, we can't. Something we talk about a lot on the podcast is the savior complex. And I see it pop up in some really ugly ways when it comes to foster care and just, you know, that good intentions don't always equal good impact. And I think a lot of it does stem from that savior complex. And you use the word humility to describe that, but I would also argue realistic, right? It's a more realistic way yeah. of parenting. Yeah. How about for you, Dave? What's a moment or event that you feel like really shaped you into the person you are? Well, I can go all the way back to the very beginning. I was born with some pretty significant health problems and I spent my childhood and my adolescence really trying to be normal. Uh, and trying to ignore any issues that were related to those those challenges. But as I look back, I realize more and more how foundational that was in shaping who I became um, in some really good ways and in some ways that I still struggle with. I never enjoyed that feeling of youthful immortality or youthful kind of... Uh, I guess, carefree confidence or, or ignorance. Uh, I, I was sort of born a middle-aged man in that regard. So I, I think that really shaped a lot, like I said, in some good ways and in some ways that, that still challenge me. Yeah. I mean, I can relate a little bit there. I had very bad chronic pain from like 14 to 27. I definitely had that feeling of like, I should be feeling invincible right now and like not worried about you know, if I do this, then I'll be in, you know, this much pain for the next three days. And it can sh really shape you into a very strong person, I feel like. But then, yeah, you have those coping mechanisms, at least for me, that's how it came out. I had coping mechanisms in my late 20s. I had to really like unpack and right. kind of move forward. Yeah. So I'm interested to hear how did you guys uh, meet each other and then get the idea to start Groundwork Ranch together? Kind of what led you on that journey? And then, yeah, why why foster parents and kids in care and equine therapy? I met Lottie 
about seven years ago uh, at a professional conference for the Colorado Counseling Association. Uh, She had a display table at the trade show portion of the conference. And um, I was intrigued. I've always been an animal lover. I did not grow up as a horse person. But at the time, I was the human half of a, uh, a a canine therapy team. I used to take my my dog into hospitals, uh, so I was very well aware of the therapeutic value of animals. So I walked up to her table and I, and I said, "Where is your herd?" And she said, "It was in Louisville, and I happen to live in Louisville." And I said, "Oh my gosh! Well, do you need any volunteers?" And um, the rest is history. The more we worked together and the more we sort of crystallized our ideas about why working with horses is so effective, uh, we realized that horses as prey animals behave in a lot of ways very, very similarly to humans who have experienced trauma. And we realized that the skills and the perspectives that we both used and taught other people to use in order to work effectively with horses were virtually identical to the skills and the perspectives that parents need to adopt to work effectively with or to parent effectively children who have experienced trauma. Really, all children, but especially children who have experienced trauma. And it occurred to us that this would be a really powerful way, not only to help foster parents, but ultimately to help the children in care and to help the parents create a more healing, therapeutic environment for the children in their care. Uh, Because to work with horses, you get real world practice in the same techniques that can create that healing environment and that safe, trusting relationship with children in care. Yes. And I actually had the pleasure of attending one of your foster parent trainings. And I will say I was a bit skeptical um, before I went. I had looked at your website and there was all these amazing reviews that were like, you know, this is the best foster parent training I've ever attended. And I was a little scared to work with horses, too, because I didn't really grow up around animals. But it was such a transformative experience for me. It was the end of one of the hardest weeks of foster parenting I've ever done. So I was like really tired and I showed up and I'm like, is this just going to burn me out more talking about foster parenting after like that's all I've thought of for the last week? But it was amazing. I was reflecting on it. And I think it was the first time I truly understand what creating felt safety meant for kids in care in a home. I think as foster parents, sometimes, I don't know, you get triggered, right? Sometimes as much as kids in your care get triggered. So for me, I think what was so great too is just the environment it is because you're not working with a kid, right? You're working with a horse. So it kind of takes down, I think, a lot of those barriers or triggers that you might have because it's something different. But like you're saying, Dave, it's just a really creative kind of out of the box way that you can practice these skills. And then it just gave me such a confidence in parenting. So I was able to go back um, to a not easy situation and parent in a way that I just felt a lot more confident. And we actually saw a huge shift in the kid and care in our home and his behavior. I think a lot of it has to do with that environment of that felt safety. You know, like we saw his adrenaline just lower and then he had a lot more reserve for dealing with everyday frustrations or, you know, just the frustration of being in foster care and not knowing exactly what his future will be. Yeah. I was just going to say, Natasha, I think that's fantastic because the horse you actually worked with, you know, we didn't tell you this prior to you ending up with him, but I, I can't think of a better horse for you to have worked with because you ended up with our certainly our highest need, and I have that in quotes, horse. He's the youngest one that we have here. He's a Mustang. He's a very headstrong, confident horse who's still very young, so he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And when you're talking about creating felt safety at home, 
and you and seeing that shift in the child's behavior, I think we saw that with you when you worked with Soul. And there was a moment that I felt that. So pretty early on, the horse bit me pretty hard on my like forearm. And that was a moment that I think it was you or or Dave were like, oh, you know, he could be telling you he needs more space in the lead rope. Like you're you're kind of like too close to him and you're pulling him too hard because he's already going the direction you want him to go. So give him some space. So that was huge for me. Um, and then as the class went on, I was giving him a lot of slack, but sometimes he would choose to be right next to me. One of you also pointed out too, in this moment, he's choosing to be fully compliant to what you're requesting. And you're giving him the freedom, the full freedom to do that in a way that was huge because the kid in care currently in my home runs away. I say that in quotes, but he (laughs) runs away a lot and he needs that space sometimes giving him that freedom to decide when to come back. Like when, when does he feel safe enough to come back and have a conversation and not applying any pressure in those moments. So that's something we do in our home. I'm going to be here when you get back you know, you let me know when you need a hug or when you're ready to talk. That's so respectful to say to another being, you know, I will give you the space to make this choice. And a lot of times when we try to force the issue, we don't give the horse or the person the space to make the choice that we would actually want them to make (laughs) to be closer to us. But by pushing and pushing for it, we're invading their space when we back off, oftentimes we get them to do what we were hoping for in the first place. Can I, I just want to add, we call this workshop a practice lab. I have been a foster parent and I went through all the training and the licensing procedures and the continuing education, had some really good trainings, but they were all in a classroom. They were all theoretical. They were all reviews of case studies or reviews of best practices which is good foundational knowledge. But like you said earlier, Natasha, working with the horse gave you a very real, visceral experience, a hands-on knowledge of what it takes to create felt safety. We can't practice these skills on children, but we can practice them on horses and then go back and apply them and just Remember what we experienced on the ranch next time we're faced with a challenging situation at home. And we've actually had parents say, well, what happened? You know, sometimes I just have to force my kid to do this thing. What would happen if I did that with the horse? And our response is always go try it. Go try it because they're not going to hurt our horses. They're going to get a chance to try out whatever it is they think might work and they're going to see in real time what the reaction is and have an opportunity to then try it a different way and see what different response they can get. When you're out here with the horses, it's a hundred percent real. And if you try to force a horse to do something, you it's it's just not going to work most of the time. <laughs> That's another thing that really stuck with me too in the training is like making the right choice their choice. And and how you describe doing that with the horse is you kind of want to like almost annoy them a little bit or keep reminding them, you know, what is the choice you want them to make? So, you know, facing the direction you want them to go and giving little tugs on a lead rope, right. Until they choose to move forward. Whereas I think before, if I asked a kid in care to do something once or twice and it wasn't getting done, then I would feel, I feel like that frustration rising within me. And I would feel like, Hey, I don't have any control over this situation. Like what's going to happen next. But after the experience with the horses, I realized, no, like I do have control over the situation in the fact that I can make the best choice, the least annoying one, right. Or the path of least resistance. We talk quite a bit in our workshops about the idea of pressure and release. And What that means is the way we work with our horses, we ask them to do something and we continue to put pressure on them to to do what we've asked. And then the moment that they begin, or we even see them begin to think about doing what we ask, we release some pressure and that's a reward for the horse. That's communicating to the horse that 
oh, this is what the human wants me to do. And I feel better when I do what the human is asking me. This, this annoying pressure is released. And I know from my own experience as a foster parent, I was not always good at that. It, it's, it's easy as a parent to put pressure on a child. It's less easy to recognize when to release that pressure and what a reward that release can be for the child. You know, if I'm hovering over my child, put your shoes on, put your shoes on, put your shoes on, and she begins to put her shoes on, if I'm still hovering over her, I'm adding to the pressure. I'm not rewarding the effort. But if I say, cool, you're putting your shoes on, I'm going to take a few steps back and sit back down. And then when your shoes are on, we'll, we'll be able to go outside. That's not only a reward, but it's communicating to the child that my foster parent sees my effort and sees that I'm trying to do what he's asking me to do. Uh, and I think that that practice over and over in a real world situation with a thousand pounds of horse attached to a, a, a rope really drives the point home of, oh, that release of pressure is really effective. And interestingly, um, to sort of add to that, also recognizing that pressure can come in many different forms, but sometimes things like, as Dave's saying, like voice saying something over and over, tone of voice can increase or decrease pressure, standing closer versus moving away, looking directly at someone's face versus not looking directly at their face. It, those are all sort of bodily uh, ways that we can apply pressure. But there's also environmental pressures that foster parents need to be aware of that there can be, you know, temperature can be a pressure, smell can be a pressure, um, noises in the background can be a pressure that we, we have to become more aware of because those can contribute to the overall amount of pressure that a child or a horse feels. Horses are aware of things in our environment that we are not aware of just like foster children are aware of things in our environment that we are not. We just have never had to be aware of those things in the way that they have had to be aware of them. And so we might dismiss them. I live right down the street from a fire station. So uh, every day we hear sirens, fire trucks going by, ambulances going by. And it wasn't until I had a friend over who had been in a car accident recently and she heard the the siren go off and was like, oh my gosh, I, I could never live with that. Like that would drive me crazy. I have not had that, a traumatic um, car accident experience. So I, I get the luxury of dismissing those noises in a way that she did not. And that is very reminiscent of what happens with foster kids. And we as foster parents, people who are foster parenting sort of need to be aware of those things because they are affecting the the way children are behaving. No, that's so true and something so powerful to keep in mind. And the fact too, that like for some kids, it's not one size fits all because for some kids, you moving closer might actually be decreasing pressure around something stressful versus other kids, you moving closer would be something that really increases the pressure. And something else that really stood out to me about the training too was how you all talked about redefining success and then also being really creative in the ways that you get to the end goal and how even the end goal could change. And a real life application of that is the kid in Carry My Home, he's nine. And anything around personal hygiene historically has been a really big struggle for him, you know, and he's nine, right? What nine-year-old boy wants to like take a shower every day. Um, but he would have some really big reactions to it. It could just derail the whole morning. And we were having trouble getting him to brush his teeth even once a day. So after the training, I thought, okay, how can I create some felt safety around this? Like, it's not going to be a way that I would necessarily define a safety. It's going to be a way he's going to define a safety. So I said, what if we brush our teeth together? And pretty much, I would say nine out of 10 times that I offered that at the beginning, he'd be like, all right, let's do it. And now sometimes he'll brush his teeth without me there. But we were able to get him to brush his teeth twice a day now. And um, in the morning too, showers were a huge struggle. And so I was like, hey, how can I create some felt safety around that? And so now what happens is I say, hey, do you want me to go warm the water up for you? So he gets to say yes or no, but he knows I'm not going to wait, right, five or 10 minutes or negotiate a bunch of time to go warm the water up. So if he wants to take a shower with me warming the water up, it has to be then. So that's our goal, right? So he gets to school on time. 
But I go in, I warm the water up, I let him feel the water um, temperature, he okays it. At the beginning, I'd give a lot more verbal cues to help him feel safe. I'm like, all right, there's your towel. Here's your clothes. I'm leaving now. You know, I'm going to shut the door, all of that. And um, that seems to have really helped him a lot and feel a lot safer around that. And so something that could literally derail our whole morning and make us late for school is now something that he feels like he has some more control over and some support and is something that, um, right, is healthier for everybody. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Sometimes that void of having somebody around can feel like pressure for for kids who've experienced trauma, for sure. I've noticed we have had some teenagers in our home and yeah, for them, sometimes you being there is pressure, right? It just takes a lot of creativity, right, to figure it out. And willingness to try and then see how it goes and then try again and be aware of all the different types of pressure that can be affecting somebody. Yeah. And I would say too, another thing that really resonated with me that you all talked about is how horses are constantly reevaluating their environment. So something that they might say or think is unsafe in one moment, even the next minute, right? They could reevaluate that and decide it's the opposite of before. Yes. So that's something that I feel like, um, really helped me too in understanding kids in care in my home. Because for example, you know, the current kid with the personal hygiene, some days he'd be more exhausted. And so like brushing the teeth at night would be something he just felt like he wasn't capable of. And so instead of just like forcing the issue, being like, okay, you know, like our overall goal is to get, you know, the teeth brushed twice a day, but like, hey, today it's not working. That doesn't mean tomorrow he's also going to say no. I was able to create that space. And so now it's something that is done routinely, but it took us some time to get there. So we had to redefine what success was like, you know, and it can be so easy sometimes as a foster parent to feel like a failure. Like I can't even get him to brush his teeth at night, but just realizing, hey, the overall thing here is we want to create that felt safety. So the adrenaline can lower and those like everyday habits can be something that doesn't create friction and is something that's sustainable for everybody. You know, you're speaking about what happens sort of in the home. This idea of defining success can be so helpful out in the world because I'm betting that every foster parent has had an experience of being out in the world with, with their, the, the kid in care and the child behaving in a big way and the parent feeling Everyone's staring at me. All the other kids are doing this. I should be able to do this. Everyone's judging me. I'm such a horrible parent. Wow, what's going wrong here? And to step back and to be able to say, no, you know what? Today, for my child, for our relationship, success is going to look like this. And to give themselves permission to define what works for them, not what the busybody down the street says is good parenting because they have a neurotypical child. I think that's really liberating for foster parents. And we purposely set up our workshops where participants can see each other's successes and challenges. And we, we like having that, that little bit of pressure that the parents take upon themselves. It's not that people in our workshops are pointing and laughing at each other, but, but we know that parents feel pressure when they see oh, well, that person got their horse right over that obstacle. Now I'm putting pressure on myself uh, to do the same thing. And and just that awareness is so transferable to the day-to-day life with, with a, a child in care. Yeah, I have a beautiful story about that. We had a set of parents come to the program who were working with Soul, and it was time to go groom. So all you have to do is walk your horse from the gate into this certain area and go over to a fence and attach your horse to some twine. And for some reason or another on that morning, Soul was not willing to be attached to twine and stand for grooming. Every other horse was standing quietly, had no problems. The parents are grooming. And here's this one couple dealing with this horse who's like backing up. He's you know, planting his feet. I'm not moving. I'm not going near that fence. And so we, it was a great opportunity for all of us to talk about what it's like to be that parent with that child and that feeling of, 
oh, you know, everything's going wrong and I'm so I'm embarrassed and, and I, my face feels hot and I feel all this additional pressure. They had a little conference together and they decided that they were going to de- define success as soul standing still about 10, 15 feet from the fence. And that was all. And once they decided that, they felt less pressure on themselves and he settled right down because the pressure they were feeling was being translated to him. He was feeling a lot more pressure, a lot more unsettled. But once they made that decision, it was like a totally different horse. And eventually they were able to really calmly walk him over to the fence and have him attached to twine for grooming. But he wasn't going to go without some discussion. Our, our horses are managed in a very different way from sort of typical horses. So they behave differently. These are not your typical horses that anybody can walk up to. Anybody can get them to do whatever they want. They are always allowed to have their own opinion and people are always required to work with them in the way that we teach you to work with them in terms of giving them choice and being very respectful of like who they are, that they they are allowed to be their own individual horses. They're not required to be this horse that does this when I say this or this when I do this, which is what happens with a lot of horses. So people who have experience with horses cannot necessarily go out and work with these horses really easily. And what a great parallel, right, for foster parenting, even if you have parented, you know, in the traditional sense with your own biological children, it doesn't necessarily translate to kids in care. Um, And another exercise that you all did is you switched horses on us um, partway through, similar to, you know, when you're a foster parent and a new child comes into your home. And yeah, it was interesting, too, because I know sometimes there can be some lack of communication between foster families when a child moves from one home to the other. That was a little similar to when the horses were being traded off. And some of that was just like, I was like, you know, maybe this horse will react totally different to this person. Like how much is it helpful for me to say versus how much is it helpful for them to find out? Yes. And acknowledging that this horse might, let's say, didn't want to walk over the tarp on the ground for me. That horse might walk over the tarp on the ground really quickly and easily with no second thoughts for you. That has nothing to do with me not being very good with the horse or whatever. It's just they're an individual horse and they're going to react differently to each one of us. Right. Um, I'm interested too to hear from you both. What are some of the common themes that you hear coming up again and again of challenges that foster parents say they're facing when they come to these trainings? And do you think that those are the actual challenges that they're facing or when you see it play out in real time with the horses, is it sometimes their challenge is actually something totally different than they originally thought it was? Well, I'll share one that I think comes up quite a bit is that what we hear is, you know, I've got a child who goes from zero to a hundred with no sign, with no warning. And I 100% know that that can feel very true. Uh, I've seen it happen. I've been working with foster families for 20 something years and foster kids. And I know that it can seem like they go from zero to 100 with no warning. What we challenge folks to do is to really start looking at early signs and be aware that the signs can look different than what we expect them to look like. So for a horse, there are little nonverbal cues that they will give before they do anything more difficult. And we have to become really, really tuned in, being very present with them to notice what those are. And that's something that can really directly translate to working with kiddos is there are really subtle signs that their amygdalas are starting to fire and they're, or they're going into amygdala based thinking. And sometimes they don't look like what we think they will look like. It can often look like excitement and happiness, but if it's to a really high degree, if it's over excitement and almost like a mania at the park, that can quickly turn into a meltdown because their system is getting overwhelmed. So 
it's it's about learning to recognize really subtle signs of of a child being a little triggered and also recognizing that the signs can look different from what we might think they would be. One of the themes we hear a lot is the sense of isolation. We've we've talked about it already here today about foster parents feeling judged by others who don't understand their kids. Uh, I think that's a very common theme and a very real challenge. Uh, another common theme that we hear is the kids' actions, behaviors are really triggering to the parents, and they feel like they're always walking on eggshells. And that can absolutely feel very true. I've experienced it personally, always walking on eggshells because I don't want this explosive experience. And, and I think underneath that, we've talked about a lot of the stuff that's going on underneath that. Foster parents often come to foster parenting with their own traumatic experiences. And that's not talked about enough. The effect of a child's behavior on the parent's existing traumatic triggers really is real. A behavior that might be challenging to any parent can be challenging plus emotionally triggering to a parent who has a, a specific experience in their background. So, so really, it, it's, it's so helpful for, for foster parents to acknowledge and to recognize and to work with their own trauma that they bring into the parenting relationship. And, and then related to that is that feeling of walking on eggshells or of, of being really triggered I think leads to the important challenge of parents identifying the emotions that are going on behind the child's behaviors. Is a behavior defiance or is it communication? So really helping helping parents understand that just like horses can't stand up and tell us, you know, I'm I'm really triggered by that flapping plastic bag in the in the background. Their behavior tells us that, and horses' behavior can often be very large, very dramatic looking, just like a, a child in care can have dramatic behavior that can really trigger the foster parents. But if we stop looking at the behavior as purely defiance, and we look at what are the emotions behind the behavior, is this child in threat response? Is their amygdala just taking over everything? What are they trying to communicate through their behavior? Um, that's a challenge, but it's a, very, it's a very common challenge. And we can learn as foster parents to see the emotion and then to acknowledge the emotion behind the behavior. Yeah. And as you say that too, it just brings to mind that idea too, that their reactions right, are to their environment. It's not to you. And I think sometimes as a foster parent, we can perceive big behaviors or challenging behaviors as something against us, you know, as the person or as the parent. But really, it's just the reaction to their environment. And so I think also having that lens allows you to be a lot more calm and just see the full picture of what's happening. Well, I, I agree with that. And I take it even one step further that the reaction is to the environment plus the learned experience. So a stimulus that could be neutral in their environment, let's just say spilled ketchup, might to other people look like spilled ketchup. But when you couple that with the very real sensory memory of seeing blood on the ground, then that becomes a really potentially large reaction. So they're reacting to their environment plus what their environment brings up for them from their past. That's really powerful. And sometimes they're reacting maybe even to you, almost like a pre-reaction to what they expect you to react. Like an example is um, the kid in care in our home. He was playing with our dog. The toy he was playing with the dog accidentally like, slammed against our wall and broke a picture. So the picture fell off the wall. So my partner said, hey, you know, what happened? Probably most people would have perceived that as like a neutral response. He wasn't angry. He was just trying to figure it out. And the kid was really, really triggered because he thought we'd have a big angry reaction. So he ran out of the house and it took a while for him to even come back around um, into the yard and then 
we were able to talk to him and explain, you know, hey, we weren't angry. We're just trying to figure out what happened. Like, it's a picture, no big deal. But yeah, I think sometimes that can be hard because to us, it seems totally out of left field, right? Like no one's yelling at you. No one's accusing you of anything. But for that kid, you know, they might be, oh my God, now I need to protect myself. Something big is going to happen. What is one of the most common changes you see in foster parents from the beginning of the training to the end? Very often we see a softening of the foster parents' kind of attitude toward or perspective about challenging behaviors like we were just talking about. And when they when they come into the workshop, maybe they'll view a horse's behavior as a sign of stubbornness or or he doesn't like me or he's a mean horse. And through the workshop, they begin to understand that the challenging behavior isn't a sign of defiance. It's they begin to see it as communication. What is the horse telling me? Oh, the horse is probably telling me he doesn't feel safe, or he's telling me he's confused because I'm sending mixed signals. So they we we often see this softening. That's the best word I can think of. And and related to that, we see parents really begin to think more and and to think first about their own energy. And I think you said something about that earlier, Natasha, about how recognizing what was happening for you and your energy was almost a prerequisite to thinking about how the horse was acting. Because foster parents learn that if I'm getting really anxious or really frustrated, then my horse is going to pick up on that. And that's going to change the trajectory of the entire situation. And we see the wheels turning for the foster parents recognizing, oh, you know what? I see myself or maybe I see my partner doing that with our foster child. The child will have a a behavior or display a behavior, and then I will react with a real elevated reaction. And then then that elevates the child's behavior. And then I elevate and we can stair step up into this crisis situation. So we see the parents kind of working through that realization with their horses. And, And I'll just mention one other one that comes to mind. We see a lot of foster parents come in very rule bound or very, um, outcome bound. Uh, and, and, Part of that is maybe their own individual personalities. Part of that is the nature of the foster care system. There's a lot of shoulds in the foster care system. There's a lot of oversight, and a lot of uh, pressure of other people judging you. And we begin to see them giving themselves permission to redefine success, to have a personal experience with their horse that might not match exactly the instructions Lottie and me gave. But they're what works for their team, for their partnership with the horse at that moment. When we talk afterwards, we see the wheels turning again to to just say, oh, I can give myself permission to to do that with the child in my care right now. And it it was so interesting, too, because you guys described how when you want to lead a horse, you face the direction you want the horse to go, which oftentimes means your back is to the horse. There is that pull and tug right of that trust because you're turning your back and then you're applying a little bit of pressure so they know which direction you want them to go. But a mistake you said that a lot of people make is that they face the horse and then they're pulling the rope of the horse. And then it's very confusing because you're telling them, hey, I want you to move forward in one way. But then you looking at them and facing them is telling them you want them to kind of stay. So I think what was also really good for me to learn was hey, sometimes we're sending these kids mixed signals when we don't even realize it. And no wonder we're both getting frustrated because stuff isn't happening. After that, I thought about how foster parenting is really like this metaphor. When I go take our dog for a walk, um, if I take the kid in care with us too, you know, our dog's pretty much a puppy. He's one. So he's running everywhere. And then the nine-year-old is, you know, chasing him everywhere. And I, I pretty much walk the same pace on the trail. 
Sometimes they're out to the left, to the right. Sometimes they're behind me. Sometimes they're in front of me, but I know where I'm going and I, I face that direction and they have the freedom to sort of move around me as long as I can see them. And we're getting there, right? We're getting there in a lot more creative way and we're not getting there in a straight path. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to get to the destination that I had set in mind. And sometimes the nine-year-old's like tired, so we might not get as far as I would have liked to go, but that's okay too, right? We're redefining success. I think it's just having a lot of trust in myself that I didn't have before to just keep facing that direction and um, taking those steps forward, even if they're not like right beside me. I know that they're going to they're gonna follow. What you just mentioned is, a, is another big shift that we see, a recognition of mixed signals. You know, we as humans excel at giving each other mixed signals. Uh, how often does our body language not match our words or the, the tone or the volume or the intonation not match our intention? We are also good as humans at picking up on those mixed signals. And what I mean by that is, we can tell when something is incongruous. We can tell when the words say one thing, but the, the energy says another. And children who have experienced trauma are even better than average <laughs> at picking up on that. Their lives have taught them and their lives have depended on them being able to read what is the energy coming at me? What is the intention of this person in front of me? So they're going to pay attention to body language, to tone of voice, all those nonverbal cues are way more important than the words coming out of our mouths. So if we haven't aligned our nonverbal communication with our verbal communication, A, we're going to confuse the child or horse, and B, we're probably going to create a feeling of unsafety or at least a feeling of apprehension what's going to happen next? I'm confused and confusion can equal danger. So I'm glad you brought that up because we see and we talk a lot about aligning your intention with your nonverbal communication. Another thing that we see when folks come here is one of the very first things we talk about is what we call the survival perspective. And that is the idea that Everything a horse does, every decision that they make is based on whether or not the behavior that you're asking gives them a good chance to survive to see the next moment. They don't have the luxury of making a mistake about that. Um, so they're very, very good at making decisions and they, they only make decisions based on whether or not they will live to see the next moment. So when a horse does something like refusing to do what I'm asking, and I might say, oh, this horse is being stubborn. But if, if I'm challenging myself to look at it through a survival perspective instead, what that might be redefined as is my horse makes good decisions and likes the decision that he has made right now. And I'm asking him to, to change his decision. But why would he do that if he already makes good decisions and knows that the decision he's made is going to help him live to see the next moment? I have to make my decision really, really good in order to convince him to change his mind. Which I think is what I saw with that toothbrushing example, where for him, no, it's safer to not go into the bathroom alone. And how could we possibly argue with that or decide that that's wrong? Because in the past, that child has had an experience that has taught them that. And how silly would it be for us to say, oh, no, no, it's not dangerous. It has been dangerous or it has been threatening to some degree. It's not comfortable for him. So allowing him to make that decision and not dismissing that as he's just being stubborn or defiant. So we see parents have that shift. And that's one of the things we really encourage is that shift in thinking from defiant to communication, like Dave was saying earlier. No, that makes a lot of sense. And another thing that really resonated with me that you both mentioned is uh, during the training was horses aren't mean or nice. 
And so that helps a lot too, to just keep that in mind too, with kids in care, right? Like a decision they're making is not necessarily because they're trying to be mean or even nice, right? They're making it because this is what feels like the safest choice for them. Absolutely. That's that shift in perspective that we encourage folks to make. And the other great thing about that is that it really is empowering for folks who work with horses and or kids who've experienced trauma is that when you do get the horse to do something you're asking, it is not because they have to do it or they're trying to be nice. They're not, that's not how they operate. You have done something that has created a situation that makes it a good idea for the horse to do what you're asking. And that's how it is with these kiddos too. You know, when you got your, your, um, the kid in care to, to, uh, take a shower. It's not because he was like, oh, I'll just be nice and just go take the shower because you're doing these things for me. You've created a new situation and have made it safer for him to do that. And that's really empowering to own that experience. I really enjoyed my time with Dave and Lottie, both in this conversation and in the practice lab I attended at their ranch, because it really does lay a realistic and sustainable path forward for foster parents to help kids in care form good habits and choose good things for themselves based on their own will. And that's just a really sustainable way to foster parent, because as a foster parent, I know I'm not going to always be around for the kids that are in my care. In foster care, reunification is always the goal whenever that's possible. And so your time with the kids in your care is usually very limited and you're not going to always be around to supervise or cajole or pressure kids into doing what you want them to do or what's best for them. So if you enjoyed Lottie and Dave as much as I did and you're interested in more, I really suggest that you attend Groundwork Ranch's free foster parent practice lab. And you can do so by visiting groundworkranch.org to learn more. Their training is hands down the best foster parenting training I've ever received. And they get a lot of feedback from participants that it's the same for them as well. And as it turns out, Lottie and Dave had so many good things to share that we couldn't fit it all in this single podcast episode. So stay tuned for part two of this conversation dropping in two weeks. That's a wrap. And as always, we love hearing from you. Please give us a follow and review on Apple Podcasts as it goes a long way in helping our show raise foster care awareness. And be sure to visit our website, justaspecial.com, for additional foster care resources. This podcast is produced by Kelton Reed and New Media Jojo. This episode is made possible by generous support from Cobbled Streets. Cobbled Streets is a Colorado nonprofit that provides customized support to kids in foster care and foster parents. Their creative support takes many forms, including free equine therapy for foster parents and teens through their partnerships with Groundwork Ranch and Foster Source, guided nature walks for the whole family, fulfilling custom foster family requests, and much more. Cobbled Streets also partners with Justice Special to support our database of foster care resources that you can find at justaspecial.com and includes more than 250 resources across the state of Colorado. We're proud to partner with Cobbled Streets because they treat each kid in care as an individual. Their innovative approach is what is truly needed to fight the foster care crisis. Learn more about how you can get involved or get support at cobbledstreets.org.